Meet Justine. She's 44 and dealing with what seems like overnight weight gain around her abdomen. And no matter how well she eats or how much she works out, it is not budging. She's also noticed a bit more brain fog in the last year and finds it harder to concentrate and accomplish her tasks. Things that used to feel easy now feel more stressful, and she just doesn't feel like herself lately. Her cycles are overall regular, but she noticed more PMS and that some months her cycles are a bit shorter, 23 to 26 days versus her usual of 28 to 30 days. Justine saw her gynecologist for her annual visit, and she spoke to her about all of these changes that she's been noticing. But she was only offered the birth control pill or an antidepressant, and she wasn't interested in taking either of those at this time, and so that is when she saw me. While Justine was still getting a regular cycle, hormonal changes start way, way before we actually go into menopause and stop cycling, and I knew there were many things for us to explore to help solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Justine's struggles and how her body seemed to have turned on a dime. Joining me on the show today to talk so much more about this is Emily Sadri. This is actually Emily's third time coming on the show. I interviewed her back in episode 107, where we talked about all of the effects of the birth control pill. And then also episode 141, where we dived really deep into semi-glutide. She's such a wealth of information. And in addition to being an esteemed colleague, she's also one of my besties. And we love to geek out on all of this biochemistry and all of the latest hormone research together. And if you don't know Emily, she's a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner and hormone and weight loss expert and really has this gift for making complex, functional, and lifestyle medicine interventions really accessible and really doable. Emily owns and operates a boutique women's functional medicine practice in Cleveland, Ohio, and she helps women everywhere live a more balanced and more healthy lives. Emily, welcome back to Health Mystery Solved. It's so great to be here, Ina. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to dig so much more into hormone support. And for everyone that's listening, you are in for a treat because while I've discussed hormone support on the show and more than once, we are going a lot deeper today. And we're going to be discussing a very specific protocol that I bet you may not have heard about from your doctor. So, Emily, just to make sure we're all on the same page, can we first talk about at what age do our hormones start to actually shift and decline? Yeah, it's such a good question. I feel like we should have this information in sex ed, you know, in middle school. Like, this is the stuff we actually need to know. There's a lifespan for hormones, right? Like we most wait, girls now are starting to get their period around 11. And so there's a, you know, climax of, of coordination between the brain and the ovaries that, um, you know, end up producing a period for a young girl around 11. But that's 
culminating after a year, right, of like the the system trying to get online. And so a lot of people think of menopause as actually like the other side of puberty, right? There's also this period of time that the body's preparing to transition. And so I think it's really interesting. And, you know, there's lots of thoughts about why girls are getting their periods at 11 now versus a slightly older age. That's a topic for another time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it is interesting that I, what I see and what, what a lot of people kind of commonly accept is that there's a period of about 10 years prior to when you'll stop getting a period during which there's a lot of hormonal decline. And the average age in the U.S. of uh, menopause is actually getting younger. So it used to be 50, uh, 51, and now some reports are saying that they think it's closer to 49. Now, of course, that's a little bit hard to completely you know, nail down because so many women are on IUDs or don't have a uterus or are doing something else that's disrupting their normal cycle. So we don't really ever know when they would have stopped menstruating. But that being said, we don't know, right? We don't get to predict the future. So I can't say, Ina Topoler, you're going to stop having menstrual cycles at 49 or 52 or 54. You know, it could be any time in that range. So we have to kind of tune into the subtle of what's going on with our bodies, which I love. You know, you teach people how to do that all the time in terms of like actually listening to what's going on because we're so used to having our symptoms dismissed. Um, And then number two, you know, luckily, there's really easy ways to test (laughs) what's going on, just like with the thyroid. Um, And, you know, it's interesting, I didn't really learn how to test estrogen levels and progesterone levels when I was in school. Um, And I think a lot of physicians don't either, because it is challenging, right? Or we have a cycle. So it's going to be different on every day of the month, um, and different depending on what type of cycle you have. Do you have longer cycles, shorter cycles, and where there may be issues in your cycle. So, it can, be, it can be hard to detect, but we're going to get all into it, I'm sure. Um, and to come back to your question, I would say there's a period of about 10 years. During that 10-year period of hormone decline, what I find is that there's periods of acceleration. So a lot of people will talk about between 41 and 43, and I see this really commonly, that there's like an acceleration. Some point, and it doesn't happen over two years, it happens like quickly, like over a three to six month period, that someone's hormones just go from one place to another. Like there's just, and maybe there was a triggering event, maybe that follows um, a lot of stress. I see this frequently with women who are having babies in their early 40s. And it's probably a little bit of both. It's probably a little bit that they're just in that age range and also that they've just asked a lot of their body and produced tons and tons of estrogen and progesterone during their pregnancy. Um, And then, of course, just that's a massively stressful event to birth the baby and then to care for it as a newborn. But over that period of time, you'll kind of be coasting along for a while. And then all of a sudden, it's like a steep drop off, right? Like you just turn a corner and all of a sudden, like there's no more path. You just drop off and you're, you know, two miles deeper. So that's the tricky part that women are not equating this onset of symptoms with hormone decline when in fact, a lot of times it is. I love what you're saying because this is exactly what was happening with Justine and something that I know you and I have talked about that we are experiencing ourselves to some degree in our 40s. And, you know, I hear this from almost every client that I talk to who is in our, you know, mid, you know, early to mid 40s range. So in terms of symptoms, as estrogen starts to decline, and I just think it's so important for people to know that it doesn't decline when you go into menopause, it declines this 10 years prior. But as it starts to decline, I think a lot of people are very used to hearing, you know, maybe their mother or friend say, oh, I have hot flashes, or I have vaginal dryness. But those are not really the initial estrogen decline symptoms, are they? No, 
those are late down the lines symptoms. And in fact, a hot flash typically comes on and we don't really fully understand the physiology of it. There's lots of different theories, but one of the ways that we know we can stimulate a hot flash is by giving someone a lot of estrogen and then taking it away. And so it's the withdrawal of estrogen that causes the hot flash. And as we move through the perimenopause time period over that 10 years, um, our ovaries are becoming less and less sensitive. It's kind of like insulin resistance, actually, to signaling from the hypothalamus and pituitary that's telling it to release estrogen. And so they're kind of like, they've got like earmuffs on. They're just like not listening. Then all of a sudden the signal gets so loud that they can't help but hear it and they they produce a ton of estrogen. So where you had prior to the perimenopause period kind of a very smooth ebb and flow of estrogen throughout the cycle. Now in perimenopause, you've got like low and then all of a sudden high and then low and then high. You'll see this like... Um, you know, traditionally, when we would talk about testing hormone levels, we used to do things on like day three or five of the cycle. So like right during menstruation, because that's when things are supposed to be the lowest. And one thing that I see in perimenopause all the time is that a woman on day five or three will have like an estrogen level of 500. Wow, that's very high. It's crazy. And, the, and so you might think initially that, oh, that must mean her estrogen's high. She has high estrogen, we should do estrogen detoxification support. Um, and I, and I will say that as an, or as a new functional medicine practitioner, like that's the message that I got too. And then I just kept seeing the same person over and over again. I was like, this is not right. So if you actually track the cycle out, that's the highest her estrogen got the whole cycle. And then it bottoms out, <laughs> right? Because it's like, she's her, her, her brain has been working so hard. And then the ovaries are like so late to receive the signal that they're like, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, it's like that last ditch effort, you know, so they're like putting out this big effort at the end, they it raises estrogen really high, but then it just doesn't have a lot of reserve, right? So the cells and the ovaries are just not as good at secreting estrogen. What was the question? <laughs> I feel like I got off track. No, we were talking about symptoms. Yeah, oh, the symptoms. And but I wanted to just comment one thing of what you said because you and I talk about this, and this is something we talk about with a lot of our colleagues. Is that oftentimes when uh, a person, you know, whether it's a doctor or someone who's newer to functional medicine, they, there's this term estrogen dominance that people use all the time. And, you know, as you said, I think it could be misused or used in a wrong way because estrogen dominance when someone's 25 is very different than having these high spikes of estrogen, like you said, at 42 or 43. And so often that can be you know, misinterpreted as dominance, but there's kind of not really a thing as dominance when we're in our 40s, the same ways in the 20s. Totally. And I've started to really hate that term because when you hear it, you think, oh my gosh, I'm overproducing estrogen. I'm making too much estrogen. And of course, because, which we'll get into as we dive deeper into the podcast, people are so afraid of estrogen, right? And so you've got this, this group of people who are really health conscious and they're so afraid of estrogen. And then you're telling them they're estrogen dominant and they think like, I'm making too much when really most, there's actually people, unless people have like an abnormality in the ovary, there's not really a lot of nor like typical people who are actually producing too much estrogen. It can happen with tumors and things like that. It's not so much that you're producing too much. Young women, for example, it's more that they're either not ovulating, so they don't have balance between estrogen and progesterone. And so there is more estrogen relative to progesterone, and so they're out of balance, but they don't necessarily have too much estrogen. And then, of course, there can be situations where people are just not Maybe they're, they're really constipated. They don't have a varied diet. They have a gut microbiome that's not detoxifying well. 
issues with the liver, heavy drinking, things that really back up that, you know, estrogen is being produced every minute of every day. And so we're also detoxifying it and excreting it every minute of every day. And so you can have errors in excretion and detoxification and problems that can cause too much, you know, old estrogen kind of hanging around, but it's not again, an issue where you're making too much estrogen. So just, just to like clear that up in the beginning. So in the beginning, you know, when people are having so many women, right, you think about the 40s, women in their 40s, and I, I have, you know, I, have, of course, have a special appreciation for this, because we both have busy lives and children and, and women are having children a little bit later now, right? It's very typical to have children in your mid 30s, late 30s, um, even early 40s. And so we're so quick to normalize our symptoms, because our lives are so challenging. My kids are little, they're a lot of work, I've got a lot going on. And then the next thing we do, because we're also so, um, well, we're kind of egocentric as a species, but we'll say, I'm not doing enough. I'm not exercising like I used to. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not being as tight in my diet as I could be. And so we look for all the reasons that we don't feel great, like just having kind of low lying fatigue, maybe we're more moody or anxious, we're snappier with our partner or with our children, um, maybe our sleep isn't as good. And so we're waking up at three or four in the morning and kind of ruminating about all the things that we're not getting done. Um, maybe we're not as interested in sex, because let's be honest, we're really busy, and who has time for that, right? So you can see how all of these things, it's really easy to just be like, these are all kind of my fault, or just a result of like my life circumstances. And we never in our brain go, oh, there must be something going on with my hormones. <laughs> oh, it must be my hormones. No one does that, except they do do it with thyroid once in a while, which you know, <laughs> yes. right? People have that association and kind of know because so it's, you know, it's become so prevalent. Um, and I think we actually do a better job in medicine of, of screening women for thyroid issues, of course, not as thoroughly as they need to be, but versus we, we're not screening people for loss of estrogen. Because it's a normal thing, right? Like for a lot of, especially more conventional practitioners, it's like, well, that's supposed to happen. So why screen for it? And it all comes down to a belief system of is loss of estrogen normal and healthy or is it normal and unhealthy, right? Like insulin resistance, you could also argue that it's normal, right? That over time, the longer that you live, the more insulin resistant your cells will become, even if you're eating a healthy diet, right? You'll become a slight, a little bit more insulin resistant as you age, just because of over time, maybe this, this, you know, things, things break down, the, the re receptivity of our cells isn't as good. Is that normal, right? You ask the people who are doing who are, you know, the big biohackers, and who are really focused on longevity and the longevity research. A lot of that longevity research is about maintaining that that insulin sensitivity, right? So that we can maintain low glucose levels. So why aren't we talking about maintaining a system that also declines, right? And I think a lot of it comes back to when you listen to some of the um, biggest voices in the menopause space right now, um, so much of the patriarchal kind of framework that's applied to medicine. And just, we don't get that upset about women suffering. We just don't. We, we don't care about women suffering as much as we care about men suffering. And this is why, you know, prescription of testosterone, testosterone for men has been FDA approved for so long. It's not FDA approved for women, even though women have tons of testosterone in their body as well and also need it for lots of functions. So we just start, we just have a bias, I think, that has dictated, you know, how we have what kind of framework we even view all of this from. Yeah. And that needs to change. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, I think in terms of safety, there's a lot of just 
misinformation out there. And I've talked about this on the show several times, but can we just do a little summary of, you know, the studies that were flawed and what was at first considered unsafe that we know actually is not true. Tell us a little bit more about that. So there's two, two main studies, the, the largest one being the Women's Health Initiative study. If you Google WHI study, it's the first thing that comes up. They have a huge website. It was, you know, proclaimed, um, especially in the, in the world of epidemiology to be like one of the best studies to date ever, not just on hormones, but just ever because it was so big and it was randomized. It was an RCT, which is, you know, one of the gold standards in um, medical research. And it examined almost 100,000 women. It randomized women. So meaning some women got placebo, got like a no medication, and then some women got um, a combination. Well, there were actually three arms. There was a group that just got estrogen, a combination of a drug called Premarin, which is um, conjugated equine estrogen. So it's actually horse estrogen that was, you know, it's not bioidentical or similar (laughs) to what humans are producing in terms of estrogen. So they were getting conjugated equine estrogen, which is actually comes from the urine of pregnant horses. Just lovely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then they also got medroxy progesterone acetate. So they got uh, a synthetic progestin. Um, And, and then there was also an estrogen only arm. And so the things that they were looking at in this study were um, cardiovascular incidents like stroke, thromboembolism, um, heart attack, and they were looking at breast cancer um, and several other things. They, they looked at a lot of things in the study. It was supposed to be over many, many, many years. Most of the women in the study were nurses, and most of them actually had cardiovascular issues going into the study. Most of them were at least 10 or 15 years past menopause, which is a really important thing to remember about the study because you're not talking about catching estrogen loss early. You're talking about a group of women who have had no estrogen exposure for a long time and then all of a sudden giving them estrogen. And one of the problems with this, which was also mirrored in um, a study called the HERS study, is that you know when you give somebody who hasn't had estrogen for a long time, estrogen is really good at keeping buoyancy in the, in the blood vessels and reducing inflammation and kind of the estrogen and progesterone both play a role in like recycling the inner lining of the blood vessels. Right. So this is very cardioprotective. Right. And, and there people kind of had a sense that this was the case for a long time. And everyone kept trying to study it and prove it, because wouldn't it be great if we had a drug we could put every woman on that would prevent cardiovascular disease and heart attack. Right. Which is, by the way, the number one killer of women in the U.S. is cardiovascular disease by far. It's not sexy. So people don't talk about it as much as things like osteoporosis, Alzheimer's and breast cancer. But what happens when you start someone who hasn't had estrogen for a long time on an estrogen replacement is that if you've got plaques and clots kind of sitting there and then all of a sudden you make everything loosey goosey and really soft and pliable, you're going to release clots. So what they found was that it increased rates of cardiovascular incidences in the short term. So it's like if something was there, it it primed you for having an issue. It also found initially that um, it, they, well, so a couple issues. They found that there was an increased risk of invasive breast cancer. That risk, however, upon like subsequent reanalysis has been really minimized and distilled down to like an almost basically not statistically significant increased risk. Um, and that has to do with, you know, very nerdy epidemiology, statistical analysis stuff that I really hate talking about. 
I very much struggled through my epidemiology course in graduate school. And, and actually what they found is, and this is especially interesting, is that in the estrogen only arm, when they looked at these women further out, because they did halt this study at the five-year mark, it was supposed to go longer, but because they, they felt like there, was, there were more bad things happening with these women, they stopped the study. But what they actually found is when they looked at the, the women who were only on estrogen and not estrogen and progesterone further out, those women actually had a lower risk of breast cancer upon subsequent you know, analysis of the data. What they also found in the Women's Health Initiative is that there was a significant reduction in the rate of colon cancer in women who are on hormone replacement, which nobody talked about in the media. And so that the, what happened in, in the early 2000s, 2003, the study came out was that you know, almost 40% of the population was on some kind of hormone replacement before this study came out. And then after the study, it was less than 4% of the population that stayed on hormone replacement. And so a lot of people now are looking at what has happened to women, right? Um, the, the baby boomers in particular, because they were the ones that were told you can't have hormones. And now they're the ones that are suffering from, from not having hormones, essentially. Um, the other really important thing to remember about the WHI study is that they only studied oral estrogens. Not only were they equine, but they were only oral. So they didn't look at topical estrogens. And subsequent analysis like, has found that in topical estrogens, there is no increased risk for cardiovascular incidence. So there's so much evidence now that a lot of these things are safe. But when something like that makes a huge splash in the media and it's all over the news, it's really hard to undo those thoughts, even though the New York Times has probably published 24 articles on this in the last three years <laughs> about how safe HRT is now, people still are really steeped in that. Like, I don't want to get breast cancer, so I'm not going to take HRT. And well, and also we have to remember, right, that it was, it was synthetic hormones that were studied. So we can't, it's like literally comparing apples to oranges, right? I mean, it takes 21 days for this equine horse estrogen to leave your system versus a bioidentical estrogen works so much differently. But a lot of times, Doctors aren't even distinguishing between the two. And in, in you and I were talking even that just through our schooling, because we went to school 20 something years ago, right? Like it was instilled in us as well. Like if you're going to use hormones, use them for the shortest amount of time with the lowest possible dose, right? Just all based off all of those. Right. And it's like, if you're trying to be a great practitioner, if someone tells you, well, there's this kind of dangerous thing and you can use it, but only for severe symptoms and for a very short time, it's like, well, I'm just not going to use it. Right. Because if you're a high performer and you're like, you're really good, you're just not even going to do it. I remember thinking that to myself sitting in graduate school, like, oh, I just won't, I will never prescribe hormones. That's something I'll never do. And it's really sad because a whole generation of providers were trained, you know, to, to believe that. Um, somebody told me once that 50% of what is taught in medical school will be proven wrong within the next 20 years after you graduate. Makes sense. And I'm a nurse practitioner, but, you know, all of my training was the same, you know, guidelines and protocols that people are learning in medical school. And it's really up to the provider to stay current on evidence so that they know if something is changing. And unfortunately, we just don't, you know, we don't have a lot of time and our institutions are not, they don't really care <laughs> about us learning about hormones. They, they care a lot about other things, especially for OBGYNs. The focus is really all on pregnancy and birth and not on learning about hormones and how to support that transition. And which is funny because not everybody's going to have a baby, but literally half of the entire population is going to go through menopause. That is a very good point. Yeah. And, you know, while, of course, everyone's symptoms do vary, as you said, sometimes, you know, and we often can attribute that to stress, you know, I find almost always 
people are going to be complaining about the fatigue, the brain fog, the weight gain. And this is early on. I'm not talking at 50. I'm talking at 42, 43, 44. If I had a penny for every time someone came to me just like Justine and said, I woke up one day and like I had belly fat. I mean, that I was experiencing that myself personally too. And it's very, it's it's literally overnight. It's not this gradual thing. And then, of course, I mean, the weight can come on gradually if we don't do anything about it. And like you said, often we will say, okay, well, we need to eat better. We need to exercise. And in some cases, yes, that is, of course, correct. But what I find in Justine's case and a lot of other cases is that as people start to eat better and exercise, they're not seeing the shifts, right? Like they are eating like so clean and then they're increasing their exercise sometimes by 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour a day, right? And to the point where they might even be exhausting themselves and where this would have worked 10 years ago for them, it doesn't work anymore. And I think that's where that frustration comes in, right? Because who wouldn't be frustrated when that happens? It's it's maddening. It makes people feel crazy. And then, you know, in our diet culture where everybody around every corner has a solution for how you should lose weight, it makes you feel like you're just just not achieving anything. And then so many women in this age group, after trying all that, they just end up with the effort syndrome. You know, they're like, mm-hmm. F this nothing works anyway. So I might as well drink a glass of wine every day and just eat whatever I want because literally nothing is changing. But it's fascinating because when you follow these women, I've had the privilege to follow women for several years in my practice who started maybe at 39 or 40. And then all of a sudden, they haven't changed anything. If anything, their diet and lifestyle has gotten better. All of a sudden, their LDL is high. Why? Because of estrogen, because of loss of estrogen. Their LDL is high, their fasting glucose is a little bit higher, and oh, they have like an extra inch on their belly. This extra fat deposition, you get especially more visceral fat in perimenopause. So why is it that we're not thinking about the root cause here, right? Because the root cause is not gut dysfunction. <laughs> it's not It's not that you're eating the wrong food. The root cause is loss of hormone. And instead we're focusing on, it's like, yes, do you need to change your lifestyle a little bit in perimenopause? Yes, because you're not going to be able to tolerate probably carbohydrates in the same way that you used to be able to, you know, you do need to eat more protein in order to maintain muscle mass, et cetera. However, if the root cause is loss of estrogen, and we know that the things that come after that are insulin resistance, elevated lipids and cholesterol, And right, we're just talking about a whole group of women that are a huge part of the workforce. And if their capacity to function and to be productive is going down, why aren't we helping them? (laughs) Why aren't we treating them? Right? It comes down to that all of the providers out there have been taught. This is what was taught when I was in school. It's a little bit different now. It was don't treat for anything other than hot flashes. You can only treat for hot flashes. And the best, and this is the best part, the best thing for hot flashes is antidepressants. Oh my gosh, I haven't heard that. That was that, because that was, that's what's FDA approved. It's FDA approved and it's the safest in their, in their opinion. Mm. The safest intervention is antidepressants. And if that's not working, then you can consider estrogen, but only for up to five years. Now they say for up to 10 years. And, and, and unfortunately, NAMS, the, the, it's just the North American Menopause Society, is very behind on some of the newer thoughts and um, you know, early evidence around just what kind of benefits there are to correcting that loss of estrogen. And to approach menopause and perimenopause 
from the perspective of how can we return homeostasis to the body and how can we um, promote optimal function versus is it just something to manage symptoms around? Like personally for me, that's not how I live my life. I'm not about managing symptoms, right? It's not why I got into functional medicine. It's not why either of us do the work that we do. Like, of course we all want to feel better, but if you're just managing symptoms, like you're, you're literally forgetting everything else beneath the surface. There's just, yeah, a big paradigm shift that needs to happen for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think on the good news front of this is, you know, in terms of social media, and obviously there's many different things we could say that's negative about social media, but I think the positive from that is that there's so many more people that are speaking out about this. And I mean, there's all these accounts that I'm constantly getting notifications for that are talking about the benefits of bioidentical hormones and all of the research, um, you know, how some of the past research is flawed and all of the new research, which, you know, as you said, like NAMS and some of the other organizations, I mean, when it's a big organization like that, it takes years to catch up and that it's just how it is, you know? So thankfully, I think people are starting to see the benefits. um, And, you know, I think a lot of doctors are kind of looking more into it. Now, if a woman is seeing her hormones decline. And typically, you know, as you said, a lot of times they're not offered anything. And if they're offered something, it's going to be later on, you know, closer to menopause or in menopause. Um, And right now, what are some of the options that people have? Because oftentimes it'll be birth control or synthetic hormones. So what are the things that people could be offered? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like your patient, most women who are showing up to their doctor or OBGYN and saying, you know, I'm 45, I still have a period Sometimes I skip a period, like every six months, I'll skip a period for the last couple of years. And, but most of the time they're like 25, 26 days, but I feel like my PMS is worse. And, you know, I, I don't feel right. I feel like I'm gaining weight in terms of the weight gain. I think the thing that people are most offered is like, you know, exercise more and diet. (laughs) They may have their thyroid checked. And if their periods are, if, if it's the periods that are off, right? From a conventional standpoint, they're going to be offered birth control because birth control will essentially just shut down your whole hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and just superficially create a bleed every 28 days. And so that feels reassuring to the provider and to the patient because, oh, I'm seeing myself have a bleed every 28 days. And it may, for some, it may mitigate some symptoms because it's just shutting everything down, right? But there's not the, there, the, Ethanol estradiol, which is the drug in most birth control um, and synthetic progestin, do not have the same benefits and health benefits as estrogen and estradiol, which is one of the three types of estrogen and progesterone, right? So when you do that, you're taking a woman who's already deficient in hormones and who may be ovulating slightly irregularly or ovulating with less vivacity. You know, they're, they're not producing as much progesterone after ovulation, um, and then you're you're just taking away the last of what they have and giving them something synthetic. So now they really have no hormones, right? Nothing to protect um, their bones, their brain, their cardiovascular system, their mental health, <laughs> and all of the things. So, you know, if you go to someone who's a natural practitioner, someone who's a little bit more functional or has some more knowledge about hormones, for, for sure in early perimenopause, very early, if some people are having some symptoms of low hormones or you're seeing low hormones on a Dutch test, which I always, I always use serum to really assess. And and we can talk about that in a second, but 
maybe, you know, some, a, another kind of functional practitioner is saying, oh, you're a little bit low. There are some herbs that can help. Vitex is a great one um, that is, you know, boosts progesterone, can help to increase estrogen a little bit. Um, certainly just healthier lifestyle. Like if you don't have a great lifestyle and you're really highly stressed, your hormone production can be lower. So there's always room to work there. Um, you can do things like maca, dong kwai. There are, there are certainly herbal formulas, adrenal support things that can make your project pr- production better. But I think the important thing here is that if you if you feel all the way better, great, right? That might work for a little bit of time. But if you're doing all of these things and taking multiple supplements and you still don't really feel the, the needle moving a lot, I think it's really important to do serum blood work with a hormone practitioner who knows what they're doing and actually see where your hormones are on day 12 and 21 of your cycle. Those are the two days when you, your estradiol is peaking highest on day 12 and then um, slightly lower on day 21 along with progesterone. That's when progesterone peaks. And so especially if you, you know, are having a cycle, you're still cycling, which is why so much of this is missed because we just assume, well, you're, you're cycling, so you still have hormones. Not true, right? You can have half the amount of hormones that you had at, th- at 35 or 25 at 45, but you're still having a cycle, Right. So you have to check those hormones on those two days. The target range, the target for estradiol is about 350 on day 12 and about 250 on day 21. Okay, so this is to- just estradiol at all, not total estrogen. Actually, it's, it's actually total. So it's estradiol plus estrone. Okay, so total estrogen, you would want to be closer to 350 on day 12 and 250 on day 21. Correct. Yeah. And so if, so if you, and I, what we'll see all the time and you might be low on just one of them or, you know, and it could be very low, right? You might be like 98, see this all the time on day 12. And it's like, oh, and then because estrogen is low in that first part of the cycle, what happens is estrogen is priming your progesterone receptors. Estrogen also plays a role in helping to bring forward that dominant follicle, right? So just a little um, physiology review, you know, day one of the cycle, your hormones are low, you've just had your period, estrogen should be rising around day five, it's really starting to rise, right, thanks to the brain governing what the what the ovaries are doing, you're getting this rise in estrogen from day five to 12. And as that estrogen's rising, it is bringing forth a dominant follicle, it is getting a follicle ready for you to ovulate. Estrogen hits its peak around day 12, and that triggers luteinizing hormone from the brain. That's what you would test if you were doing like a urine ovulation predictor stick, right? When LH surges, that's when you should bring forth a dominant follicle and to ovulate. And then when you ovulate, that egg starts to travel down the fallopian tubes, but left behind in the ovaries is this little temporary endocrine gland called the corpus luteum, which secretes progesterone. The problem is, as we age, sometimes progesterone secretion is just going to be low on its own. But if someone's estrogen is low, especially between days one and 12, they're not upregulating their progesterone receptors. And so they may end up having now a shorter luteal phase because their progesterone receptors are not working as well because they just didn't have enough estrogen in that first part of the cycle. So sometimes we will find this and just give a little bit of estrogen in the beginning. And then we see that the cycle regulates, right? And we are tracking and you know, these are people who are really tuned in and really know that they're ovulating, maybe they're temperature tracking, maybe they've done fertility awareness method, right? This is a little bit deeper work than just like, blanket hormone replacement. But you know, this is one way this is like one place where we'll see in perimenopause a pattern, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's it's definitely a common pattern because I think so often practitioners will just say, oh, you know, let me just give you some progesterone. 
And that is something that, you know, I mean, progesterone, obviously both hormones are safe, but that's, I think, used more commonly. And that could work, but if the estrogen decline is really the bigger issue, then you're kind of covering it up. And then there's almost going to be like that inverse of higher progesterone to an even lower estrogen, right? Yeah, which makes people feel down and depressed and tired and all those things. So often progesterone alone will work for a short time. And I will do that with people and cycled, you know, just a little bit of extra progesterone from days 14 to 28. Um, And that helps, that helps extend their cycle again. They can get to 28 days. Um, But I always keep an eye on what that day 12 and 21 estrogen are doing, because if they're really low and symptoms aren't better, right, then we have then we have a problem. Um, And I find that that progesterone only approach works for a year or less (laughs) is really like what I found in clinical practice. Again, this is not something that is written about or studied, but just anecdotally from my patients. That's what I see. Yeah. Well, you do this all the time, right? And you have so much of your own data and so many other practitioners do the same, but it's just interesting because, you know, typically even in the more functional approach, it, you you get sort of that kind of static support and people aren't always getting the benefit. And I think partly because there is a little bit of that fear of estrogen. I think practitioners are maybe more comfortable saying, oh, here's progesterone, it's fine. Estrogen, no, we'll just wait and see. But really, it's the estrogen that has all the benefits, right? So the benefits for your heart, for your brain, for your bones, right? For your skin. Can we talk about aging and estrogen real quick? Oh my gosh, there's so much here. Yeah, I think that in, in, the, in the crazy of all estrogen is bad, we've forgotten that estrogen is really the primary driver of, of health and longevity. So you know, estrogen is actually the most effective thing at preventing and treating osteoporosis. <laughs> and the data still will say it's the best thing, but we still aren't sure we want to recommend it because we think it's still probably a problem. So it's inc- incredible at protecting the bones and all of the other, you know, alternatives to treating bone loss are really not really fun medications and they're kind of nasty. Um, it is so protective of the brain, you know, prior to um, menopause, we have a significantly lower risk of, of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's than our male counterparts. Um, you don't hear much about early onset Alzheimer's in women, but you see it in men, right? And then after menopause, we have three times as many women who get Alzheimer's as men. And so that's a, a you know really important area where the research is still lacking. We need to understand more about, especially, you know, the prevention of Alzheimer's with, with estrogen. Um, we know that Estrogen is important in collagen synthesis. It's one of the things that happens, you know, to the perineum and to the vagina is that we don't have that like lush, plump, soft tissue anymore as estrogen is declining. Really like the, I mean, even the folds of the labia start to recede and get smaller, right? Even the, like the clitoris goes away almost. It gets like fused with the skin around it with loss of estrogen. Like these are wild things that happen to female genitalia that nobody's talking about. And so if you think about the same to the face, like think about how the lips kind of recede, how the skin sags, these are all estrogen driven factors. Right, right. But you know, I also find interesting, I mean, again, I think from the functional perspective, everyone's on the same page that it is beneficial. But you know, for those people who are still are nervous or scared about estrogen, right, if we're using bioidentical estrogen, which is essentially the same, right, as the estrogen in our body, how is it that it's not bad when we're 35? naturally in our body, or even when we're pregnant at 
35, let's say, or, or 30 or whatever it is, right? But like, are we then scared to be pregnant because we're going to have estrogen? Like that's the part that, you know, I'll- Estrogen's not the problem. Estrogen's not the problem. Otherwise everybody would get breast cancer when they were pregnant because estrogen levels are in the thousands, right? Exactly. And you know, if you ask the really big experts, like what causes breast cancer, they'll say they don't know, really. We really don't know. Yeah. And also, you know, there is- a lot of breast cancer that happens post-menopause. So if estrogen was always the problem, why would postmenopausal women who are not on hormone replacement or never have been on hormone replacement get breast cancer? Right. Yeah. And so it's the breakdown and the falling apart of that ebb and flow of hormones. And we don't understand it fully yet, but we know that it's that ebb and flow that's so important. It's not just absence or presence right? That is really driving these health indicators. And so this is what I really want to get into because I think even though there's been this debate, but I think it's really making headway now that like estrogen really is beneficial and having estrogen for longer is good. Typically what happens is when people do go on hormone replacement, and this is not just with conventional doctors, this is with functional medicine practitioners too, right? They are going to then go on a static dose, right? And so that we see this all the time, right? And it's bioidentical, it's natural estrogen, but you know, whether they are still cycling or they're done cycling and typically like towards the end, right? When they're done, they're going to go on a a specific amount of estrogen, not a high dose. It typically is a low dose estrogen, right? And then they'll also go on a progesterone and they'll be on the same dose the whole time, which will help a lot in terms of their hot flash. People say, my hot flash is one way. They might even lose a little bit of weight. They might overall feel a little better. And they think, okay, this is great, right? And yes, it's helpful. But let's talk about what the issues are with that. Yeah. So I think let's clarify for everybody the sort of, I guess, three different approaches to hormone replacement. So there would be static continuous, which would be you know a, a small amount of estrogen and a small amount of progesterone both every day. And that can be delivered by patch, can be delivered by a transdermal cream. And then some people will still use oral estrogens. You know, you can use trochies and then there's pellets, which I'm not a fan of. But those are basically the typical modalities. And then progesterone would be the same. You can kind of use it in the same, although you don't do a transdermal patch progesterone, you could do oral progesterone or a transdermal cream progesterone, troche. So those are the kind of approaches, and and that would be the first one where you're taking a little bit of each every single day. And that might make sense if you're postmenopausal, right, from like when people are first trying to figure all this out. Just give them a little bit of both every day. (laughs) Make them feel better, right? And it does. It reverses symptoms. Then the other approach would be to give estrogen every day and then to only give progesterone 12 to 14 days a month. Um, and that's what we know. We, we know that we need progesterone, especially if you have a uterus. I believe in progesterone for all, even if you don't have a uterus. But we know that's pretty clear in the literature that if you take, do estrogen only with no progesterone, that you slightly increase your risk of endometrial cancer, which is just cancer of the uterus because you have that uh, unopposed estrogen, essentially. So you need the progesterone, but you only need it 12 to 14 days a month. So it's like taking it for two weeks and then you stop and then you just stay on your estrogen all the time. So that would be option number two. Many women like that option because they don't like being on progesterone every day. It makes them a little sleepier, a little moodier. They like it's very calming, but it could be too much. Right? Too calming. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't care about anything and I just want to lay around all day kind of calming. Um, and then the third and lesser known approach to hormone replacement would be, um, you know, using a transdermal method with a different dose every day. 
that is mimicking the natural menstrual cycle. So starting low from days one to five and then climbing from days five to 12, going down slightly on days 13 and 14, and then coming back up with the introduction of progesterone to have another peak around day 21 and then coming down. Progesterone would only come from days 14 to 28, just like as if you ovulated and produced progesterone. Um, and then you start the whole cycle over again. Now, this is, of course, a lot more involved and requires lots of testing. You know, the idea behind this approach, which is called um, either, you know, rhythmic hormone replacement or physiologic restoration, is that, you know, when, we, when we've tried and really studied, you know, what is it that's happening with the ebb and flow of progesterone, right? There have been lots of studies on this. Um, what we find is that a lot of important things happen when estrogen peaks at day 12 and when estrogen and progesterone peak at day 21. It's those peaks that really turn on and off processes in the body. So bone turnover is one of them, right? Osteoclasts and osteoblast activity that, you know, breakdown of old bone and formation of new bone. Bone is not just a static organ, right? It's like it's a constant, constantly being recycled. That process doesn't happen if you don't hit those peaks, right? To the degree that it happens. So basically it has to be high enough for that to happen. Exactly. But, and is it that it has to get high enough at specific times or is it that it has to be high enough the whole time? Like if someone was to do a high dose estrogen statically, it wouldn't be considered a peak then, right? Correct. It can't be static because it's like you have to have something go away and then come back for it to work, right? Um, and that's the tricky part. Like this is a really hard thing to execute. It has to be a really motivated person. But if you can, right, then the theoretical benefits are high. Same thing with actually, they, they, they did studies on women who had, um, or they did a study on women who had breast cancer who needed to have a tumor removed. This is women who were just still cycling normally, like premenopausal women who were still ovulating. And they found, they tested um, doing lumpectomy surgery at different points in the cycle based on what levels the hormones were at. And they looked at the time right before, right after ovulation, like right before the peak of hormones. So when hormones kind of dropped and then right, you know, right before ovulation would cause that surge of hormones, if they performed the surgery, then right before that peak was going to happen, that group had a much lower recurrence rate for breast cancer. Wow. Like they, they were much less likely because it, what happened is it would, it goes in it, that, that surge of hormones actually cleans up and turns over the breast cellular tissue. That's fascinating. It's amazing. And if you look at slides of, you know, breast cells and in the different phases of the cycle, they look completely different, right? So there's a protective, just like everything like in our, in our, right? We're always trying to turn on um, these protective mechanisms in the body where we, we, you know, cancer is happening all the time and then our body's detecting it and turning it off and cleaning it up, right? The breasts have all these mechanisms built in and it's really when those mechanisms go off the rails that our risk goes up. That's really, really fascinating. And I mean, if you think about it, right? I mean, how our bodies function naturally, I mean, there is a rhyme and reason to nature, right? And how things are. Like, why does our estrogen peak and then go down a little bit and then peak again, right? Like, it's just this beautiful symphony that's created. And, you know, even though, of course, as we were mentioning before, people will get benefit from doing static hormones in terms of symptom relief. I mean, when in our life, do we ever have the same amount of estrogen and progesterone every single day, right? Well, it's not before puberty because we don't have any hormones and it's not during our cycling years. It's not during pregnancy, right? It, it just, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And you know, when you think about, I mean, people will always say like, like, why would you 
perpetuate like a natural process that's just naturally falling off. Like it's natural that that goes away. But, you know, it's really only been 120 years or so that we've been living past the age of 48. Right. So we, we have a very limited slice of time that we're dealing with where women are able to live longer now. But you think about it, think about the drugs that all most women are on over, when they're over 50. You know, they're on Lipitor for their cholesterol. They might be on a blood pressure medication. They're on an antidepressant, might be on a thyroid medication. You know, they're on five or six medications. And what was the thing? And granted, there's a lot that, you know, obviously that we could say about lifestyle and nutrition that are promoting those things. But we're not talking necessarily like just the unhealthy population. Like we're talking women who look healthy when you look at them eating healthy diets or eating vegetables or eating the Mediterranean diet, right? Just like their doctor said, and they still have all these issues. And so if we're talking about what, what we want to do to pro- to prolong her life and to keep her off of those medications, it's don't allow that natural protective process to go away. Like find a way to maintain it. You know, and there's, there was actually a study that was done before the women's health initiative study. It's, just, it's so funny because they studied this like um, retirement complex in, I think it was Laguna Beach. It was like a nice area of California. It was a fairly healthy population, older women. And it was just done by survey. So they're like, there were many, many women, I think eight or 9,000 women in the study. And they surveyed, you know, over many years, um, how many of these women were on hormones and, and how long they had taken them. And they found a direct correlation between how long someone was on hormone replacement. And this is mostly women on like oral estrogen, right? This was not even the optimal types of estrogen. And the the average th- that people lived longer if they were on hormones was four more years. They had four more years to their life if they were on hormones. It's just wild that like nobody's talking about these these things in, in the literature, right? So it's it's sort of like if you're gonna replace it, why not do it in the best possible way? Agreed. Yeah. Like why not mimic your body? Yes. Like you're not gonna take thyroid hormone that's why you don't like sustained release for the most part, right? Because it, because it's like, that's not how our body releases it. Just like cortisol, you know, you're not going to take sustained release cortisol all day long. That's not going to feel good. Yeah, exactly. Because there is this ebb and flow. And most people, if they do a sustained release thyroid, it's just not enough to stimulate that TSH, you know, the pituitary response to TSH and then TSH goes up and then people have to increase their dose. That's a story for another day, but yeah, no, it's, it's the same thing. Absolutely. So in this physiological restoration protocol, we'll call it the PR protocol. The point essentially then is to mimic what the body's doing so that then we can restore not just levels, but like levels at specific days. And so it's that same like ebb and flow. And as you you explained so well, all of the different benefits that come from that. So if someone is looking to support hormones, you know, this is definitely the type of support that's going to be the most comprehensive, but where would they start? So first of all, is this something that you want to start while you're still cycling or can you start this later? There is so much more to speak about when it comes to true estrogen restoration and this phasic approach. So please stay tuned to the next episode where we get into so much more of the nitty gritty of exactly how to do it and how you can optimize your hormones, whether you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, or even 60s. And I know there's a little bit of a wait till the next episode, but in the meantime, while you wait, please be sure that you're following me on Instagram, 
I'm at Ina Toppler on Instagram. And both Emily and I will be posting reels and stories and talking about this much more on IG as you wait for the next episode. And I can't wait to dig in more to this interview and show you what else we did to solve Justine's mystery and all of the things you can do to balance your hormones. I will see you then. Bye for now. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.